Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Today, he coached for over 45 years. He's an author, was an all-around athlete, and the recipient of numerous awards, a genuine leader, and a member of the Topeka and Shawnee County Sports Hall of Fame, a recently retired college and professional basketball coach who played at Kansas State and was a head coach at Texas Pan American, Kansas State, Florida, Illinois, UNLV, Oklahoma, and the Atlanta Hawks in the NBA. He finished with a collegiate record of 674 and 432 and is one of three coaches to lead five different programs to the NCAA tournament. He was in two Final Fours and four times named Conference Coach of the Year and two times was Big 8 Player of the Year. A Hall of Fame in coaching and leadership Please welcome to the show, Coach Lon Kruger. Coach, how are you? Tommy, I'm doing great. Thanks for the opportunity. Look forward to visiting with you. I am as well. I want to give a special shout out to Tony Cayazzo, who's the connection between us. And Tony and Eric are good guys. Yeah, they're great guys. Uh, played uh, 10 years ago before we left UNLV to go to Oklahoma. We playing a lot of golf with uh, Tony. And, and uh, Eric, of course, is the... Uh, fixture on the golf scene in, in Vegas. Uh, two really good guys and uh, look forward to hooking up with them more here in the near future. You were born in Silver Lake, Kansas, attended Silver Lake High School, lettered in all four years in football, basketball, and baseball. Senior year, averaged 23 points per game and went to the state tournament. In football, passed for over 2,000 yards and 23 touchdowns, and in baseball, went to the state tournament. What is your favorite sport? Tony, actually, uh, growing up was always baseball. Yeah, my dad was a huge baseball guy and uh, and coached all of our little league teams. And, uh, you know, we had uh, really good teams at, at Silver Lake. Of course, there were there were 35 in our graduating class. So all the guys played everything, all the guys lettered and everything. So it wasn't uh, that unusual to do uh, what you listed there. But uh, no, it was a great experience, uh, you know, really a, a down-to-earth, uh, you know, middle America, middle-income growing up type family that oldest of six kids and, uh, and great parents and uh, just a great upbringing. You were a point guard at Kansas state under coach Jack Hartman. You had back-to-back big eight championships in 72 and 73, and you were his first player signed. What did coach Hartman teach you? Yeah, coach Hartman was great. Uh, just an honor to play for him. Uh, he was a uh, very detail oriented. Uh, I thought he did a great job of uh, getting the most, from his players, uh, putting them in good position all the time to have the best chance to be effective and successful. And he did that with his teams, uh, not only just individuals, but also his teams. And uh, his teams are always really good defensively, but uh, attention to detail and uh, preparation was probably the, the thing that he most represented and uh, always did a great job of that. Did you take anything from him that you used in your coaching style? Of course, you take a lot from uh, all the coaches that you had. I had really good high school coaches as well. And uh, and then Coach Hartman, and then you borrow a little bit from all the coaches that you play against uh, and, and, uh, when you're coaching. So, uh, yeah, but Coach Hartman was the, the center of a lot of it for sure and, uh, and appreciated that opportunity. Shortstop pitcher on the baseball team. You're drafted in 1970 by the Astros and then in 74 by the Cardinals. And you played in the minor leagues, and you were also the ninth round pick for the Atlanta Hawks in the 74 draft. 
How are you deciding which way you were going to go? <laughs> well, again, uh, coming out of college, uh, played actually a year of minor league baseball and, uh, and uh, enjoyed that. And then went overseas and played basketball in Israel that uh, off season. We got in the playoffs over there. Didn't get back in time for uh, uh, spring training with the Cardinals. They didn't call. They weren't too worried about it. So uh, that kind of uh, ended the baseball part of it. And then uh, came back and went to the, uh, uh, you know, uh, exhibition season, played through the exhibition season with the Pistons, then got cut there. So uh, uh, wasn't good enough to play anything. So had to turn to coaching. <laughs> well, the NBA draft was it then in 74 as it is now with all the hoopla. So how did you find out you got drafted? Yeah, I don't know that, uh, like you say, it wasn't a matter of following the draft. And uh, I think I heard about it the next day or something. I don't recall. But of course, uh, you know, back then it wasn't like it is today by any means. Uh, uh, but uh, enjoyed that opportunity. Uh, you know, the draft didn't really sign with anyone. Uh, the draft went overseas and played uh, Herb Brown, actually, with their coach in Israel. He was the assistant coach with the Pistons, so came back later on and uh, went to camp uh, with uh, with uh, in Detroit. But uh, great experience, uh, great relationships uh, throughout, and uh, fortunate to be a part of it. Did you also get invited to the uh, Dallas Cowboys camp as well? And if so, did you attend it? And that was a little bit of a – it sounds better than it was, you know, the <laughs> tryout with the Cowboys. That was uh, – it sounds good on paper, but uh, no, that was a case where the Cowboys were sending people to uh, – campuses around the country and working out uh, non-football athletes, you know, people that play basketball or people ran track or whatever. So they came to campus and uh, worked us out a little bit. And, uh, uh, but that was the extent of that. You mentioned that you got into coaching. You started as a grad assistant at Pittsburgh state. How did that all transpire for you? Yeah. Finished up, uh, you know, the playing days and uh, a little bit of minor league baseball and basketball overseas. And, then came back and decided uh, coaching was the next best thing. So Bob Johnson was the head coach at Pittsburgh State at that time, and he was a former student at Kansas State and part of the you know, basketball program there. So uh, yeah, I called him, and he said, sure, come on down. We need we need uh, uh, grad assistance. So we went down there and did that for a year and uh, loved it and met some great people in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and uh, got uh, the master's degree in uh, – PE there, got the undergrad in business administration from Kansas State. So uh, met a lot of good people there. You end up going back to <laughs> Kansas State. And I did you start there as a grad assistant as well, coach? I did. That was back when the rules were a little bit different. So you could have a different number of coaches. But uh, I was a grad assistant, I guess, but I didn't take any classes. It was one of those deals. But uh, was assistant there, grad assistant, assistant there for, uh, you know, probably five years uh, with uh, Coach Hartman. And loved every minute of that, and then uh, became a head coach of Pan American at that time uh, in 1982. When you went to Pan American, you started out at seven and 21 and had three losing seasons, and then went 20 and eight. As a former coach, was the mind spinning after three losing seasons? Going, all right, what did I get myself into as a head coach? A little bit, a little <laughs> bit. It's one of those deals where you're not sure here, as uh, you know. Uh, Took over a program, I think, that won five games the year before, and we thought we were making progress, and and yet we weren't winning at the level we needed to. Then we had a couple of good players, and uh, we won 20 games. And luckily, that kind of coincided with the moment that Coach Hartman 
uh, decided to step down and, and retire. But uh, of course, Coach Hartman had a lot, uh, a lot of pull in who was going to succeed him at Kansas State, but it gave him a little bit more uh, ammunition since we did have a decent year that uh, fourth year at Pan Am. What was it like for you after playing at Kansas State, assistant at Kansas State, and then going back to be the head coach at your alma mater? It was a dream. It was great. I mean, obviously loved loved uh, Kansas State, loved uh, you know, the relationships there, loved the teammates. I mean, everything, uh, the opportunity to play with Coach Hartman and then work uh, alongside him, uh, then to replace him. Uh, I mean, obviously we're inheriting a program that was long on work ethic and, and uh, discipline and and so it's probably the easiest transition for a first-time head coach that uh, that we could have had. And then, coincidentally, we uh, you know recruited Steve Henson, who was a terrific player, and Mitch Richmond, who was a terrific player, and uh, that helped uh, uh, a little bit more than anything else. It does. How was it uh, coaching those two guys in Henson and Richmond? That was great. Uh, I mean, in Steve Henson, you got uh, the ultimate uh, you know worker, you know uh, competitive. A great leader, point guard, and of course, in Mitch Richmond, you got a future NBA Hall of Famer, in in terms of skill and uh, just a big time competitor and a big time worker, and it you know both were big on team first attitudes and uh, great leaders, and uh, we had good teams. You know, coach, you just brought up something that I uh, for the listeners out there that may or may not understand the the insights of how college basketball coaching is going. When you get players like that, you get one or two guys, whether they're the level of a Henson or a Mitch Richmond, but you get any kind of player that can lead a team, it makes coaching a whole lot easier, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you got uh, your best players uh, who are your best workers who are on the same page with the coaching staff and understanding that we're all pulling in the same direction. That's when you have your best teams, no doubt about that. If you're having to fight your your uh, you know, talented players, if you have to battle your older leadership guys all the time, then uh, you usually don't go as far as you could. So when you get everyone on the same page and those, uh, those good players are your best workers, uh, you've got a really good chance. In 90 to 96, you were at Florida. And when you took over Florida, it was a school that had small success, but mainly it was in the SEC that they were having success. And you up, end up leading that team to the 1994 Final Four. What was the main thing for you looking back that got that program turned in the right direction? Again, we had, um, you know, some players that had been there for two or three years, and they were great attitudes, uh, really talented. Uh, you know, the Craig Brown was a, a senior on that squad. Andrew DeClerc played many years in the NBA afterwards. Dimitri Hill, uh, Dan Cross. I mean, we had just really, really, uh, you know, good chemistry. Uh, the pieces fit well together, and we had talent. You know, Brian Thompson was a was the fifth starter on that team that uh, – Really, uh, you know, took a lot of pride in guarding other you know, other people's best player and and rebounding the basketball. And then, of course, Dan Cross was the leader, and Craig Brown was the leader, and and DeClerc was the NBA guy, and Demetri Hill could really score. So we had all the pieces, you know, to be a good basketball team. And uh, those guys really, uh, you know, kind of uh, trusted each other and and uh, took care of their respective responsibilities. Looking back, that was the first time you got into a Final Four with Florida in '94. As a coach, when it's over, do you look back and think, you know, maybe I could have done some things different because it's such a whirlwind being there for the first time. Everybody wants to get to the pinnacle of the Final Four. You always do that as a coach. You know, you always uh, – everyone else uh, second guesses the coach, but uh, not more than the coach does himself. Yep. 
you're always, you're always self-critical. Could have done this. We could have done that. Uh, you know, we lost to Duke in the semifinals uh, in a game that went down to the last minute. And uh, you always go back, and I think we had the ball down down two with a minute to go and got a charge call at midcourt. Uh, uh, but you always, you always go back and say, we could have done this, we could have done that. But I think it was more about Grant Hill doing a good job and making shots against us than, uh, than anything else. You know, one of the things as a coach that I never did, and I've found more and more coaches, I thought I was a rarity, but I've found since then that a lot of coaches never watched the last game of their season. I never did. And I'm talking to many friends of mine that are coaches rarely go back to watch the last game of a season. I think they think that we want to see it again. And I tell everybody, Hey, I, I was there. I, I can replay it in my head as many times as I want. I don't need to see the film. Understand that. Uh, some years that was the case with us. You know, some years we didn't watch it. The uh, other years we did, uh, uh, out of curiosity, especially if you got players coming back for the next season, you know, you're going to go back and watch it probably uh, more likely. But uh, yeah, the last game is always hard. Everyone loses the uh, that last game except a couple people in the country, and uh, it's always difficult. Uh, it, it ends kind of abruptly uh, for most. Agree. Ninety six to two thousand, you take over Illinois. If you would, how was it coaching the trio of Sergio McLean, Frank Williams, and Brian Cook? Because that were three really good players. They really were, and uh, that was really the the key to kind of getting the Illinois situation turned when Sergio, you know, from Peoria right there, he was kind of an icon of high school basketball players in the state when he and, uh, and uh, Marcus Griffin was actually a teammate and Frank Williams was a younger guy on that same squad. When those guys decided to be uh, line, I that kind of got things going and the ball rolling and uh, Illinois had a pretty good uh, stretch of basketball after that. Yeah. And I was living in Illinois at the time. And I remember that team got, everybody pumped up in the state of Illinois because as you said, three Peoria guys and Sergio McLean's father was the coach at Peoria manual had won four state championships in a row and to see all those guys go there. I mean, the level of excitement was high in Illinois at the time with those guys playing for university of Illinois. That really was, uh, you know, again, Illinois is a you know, state that takes a lot of pride in its high school basketball. You get the, you know, Brian cook, uh, uh, you know, Sergio, you get the player of the year, you know, a few times uh, in succession and uh, good things are going to happen. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a great stretch. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, even after we left, uh, it became better when Bill took over and, and uh, then Bruce comes in and goes to the final four. So uh, good basketball for Illinois right there. Yes, there was. When did the opportunity for the Atlanta Hawks first get presented to you when you, when you were at Illinois? Yeah, that was kind of an unusual situation. Uh, uh, back uh, in 2000, uh, Tom Izzo was at Michigan State, and I was at Illinois. We talked a lot, and uh, you know, Atlanta had reached out to Tom about you know coaching the Hawks. And we, you know, Tom's calling every day, and we're talking about pros, cons. You know, what do you think about it? And and I thought Tom was going to do it. And we called back one day, and he says, "Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But they want you to do it." <laughs> so, so uh, for me talking to Tom about Tom doing it, they came back to Tom talking to me about me doing it uh, with the Hawks. So we decided to do it. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, we got fired in our third year, but uh, it was uh, in a healthy way. It was kind of a humbling experience and uh, we learned from it and, uh, and a lot of good relationships. How long did it take you to adjust from coaching college to coaching in the NBA? It's not so much the basketball itself, you know, because you always, uh, everyone's trying to put players in a position on the floor to be effective and, and, and do their best. 
but the relationship between coaching staff and front office and, and all this stuff around it, uh, I was really, really naive. I did a terrible job, you know, actually uh, in that capacity. Uh, uh, so uh, it is a little bit like the front office, you know, recruits your players, your team, and you coach them. It'd be like the AD recruiting and coaching, you know, recruiting your team and then you, you know, head coach coaching them. So there's going to be conflict if you're not all on the same page. And, and I didn't do a very good job of, uh, of helping us be on the same page there. Longer seasons and more games of the NBA. Did that become more of a, a grind and a challenge as the season gets longer for the NBA than it is in college? Well, it is when you're not very good. And, and we didn't, we weren't very good. We didn't win many games. So that 82 games becomes a long season for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, then you had playoffs, you had exhibition games and playoffs. We never got to the playoffs, so we didn't have uh, that tacked on. But uh, no, it's a, it's a long season for sure. You're back then. You might play, uh, you know, four games in five days, which is uh, not doesn't happen anymore. But uh, uh, it was uh, in 164 days. You play 82 games, so it's an average of every other every other day you're playing a game. Then you had travel to that. Uh, it becomes a, an interesting schedule for sure. Absolutely. That, that just sounds uh, tiring. <laughs> and without winning, it's even more tiring. You know, yeah. it's a pretty, tough, pretty tough grind on those players. Was it true in, in 03 that there was a guarantee of $125 the season ticket holders if the Hawks didn't make the playoffs? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. It was kind of, a, you know, kind of, kind of twisted around a little bit. I think, I think my, my objective was that should we make the playoffs that, uh, you know, the first round tickets would be free to the season ticket holders. Mm. But it was kind of twisted around to where the guarantee came into effect, uh, which kind of uh, was a little bit uh, inaccurate, but uh, uh, we rolled with it anyhow. you go as an assistant for one year with the Knicks before coming to UNLV? We did. Actually, when we were in Atlanta as a head coach, we hired, we tried to hire Don Chaney, who was assistant with the Knicks at mm. that time, uh, to be an assistant in Atlanta. And he almost did it, but decided not to. So he stayed in New York and then subsequently became the head coach in New York of the Knicks. And so when we got fired, Don called and said, hey, you know, you, you tried to give me a chance down there. If you want to come up here as an assistant, and I said, sure, we'll uh, we'll love to work with you for a year or a while. And uh, so we did that. And then Isaiah came in in January of that first year and fired everyone. So we didn't last very long. <laughs> you end up coming to UNLV from 2004 to 2011, and you coached your son, Kevin, who's now the head coach for the Running Rebels, who transferred from ASU. What was it like, first of all, being able to coach your son? It was great. Uh, you know, again, we kind of were able to skip all the awkward moments because Kevin uh, had graduated from Arizona State. He registered his first year there, then graduated. So uh, he played a lot of, lot of ball in the Pac-12 and, uh, you know, had a good career there. So then uh, he's actually the first grad transfer with that rule change uh, to move uh, from one school to another and play right away. So um, we did that uh, in 07, I believe it was. Kevin came up and uh, and was a point guard on that team. We had a really good team because we had all the pieces back minus a point guard. So Kevin fit in very well, and the players wanted him there because they needed a point guard, and, and he'd already played a lot at Arizona State, so it wasn't like he was playing because he was our son. So uh, it all worked out great. Kevin, uh, the, one of the more enjoyable years in coaching, uh, having the son there every day. It might have been stressful on my wife, Barb, you know, watching her son play every day, but uh, uh, it was great. We uh, had a great experience. 
at Kansas State Big 12, you go to the SEC, you go to the Big 10, and then you end up at the Mountain West. How was that transition from being from Power 5 conferences coming into the Mountain West? It was great. Uh, of course, we had uh, done the other, you know, uh, stops, that, like you mentioned, and uh, and, and level of play at that time in the Mountain West was really, really good. You know, BYU was great. San Diego State was great. Uh, the coaching in that league was really good. You know, a lot of uh, outstanding coaches, uh, you know, it was a little different in not being a non-Power 5 one school. But at that time, we were getting at least three teams, if not four teams, in the NCAA tournament every year. So that's how powerful that league was at that time. And uh, so it was a good, uh, good challenge and a fun experience and loved their time in, uh, in Las Vegas. You took the team to Sweet 16 for the first time since 1991, which was under coach Jerry Tarkanian. That team had a record of 30 and seven, which was your, I think your only season with 30 wins in the collegiate level. What was so special about that 06, 07 team? As we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, we had a lot of really good players returning from the year before. We had a good year the year before, but we were minus the point guard, and then Kev came in. So the pieces just fit very well together. We had really good players. Uh, Joel Anthony, who went on to a 10, 12-year career in the NBA as a shot blocker in the middle. Wendell White was a really good scorer. Michael Ume, terrific guy on the perimeter. Uh, Wink Adams. You know, we had a veteran group that uh, really played well together and and meshed well together and uh, and uh, pulled like crazy for each other. Speaking of Kevin, and we mentioned it, that he's now the head coach at UNLV, going to be entering his first season here coming up in the fall. What is it like you as a coach and a dad, a former player, to see them take over as a, a head job now? Well, certainly, yes. Uh, you know, we've had uh, former players take over as head coaches, we've not had a, a son take over as a head coach before. So uh, this will be our first experience with that, but uh, I'm sure it'll be nerve wracking. It'll be stressful. It'll be great. It'll be fun. It'll be all the things that you might imagine, like watching your son or daughter play, you know, that's the best thing. And also the most stressful thing uh, as a parent. And I'm sure uh, watching him now as a head coach will be the same thing. It'll be the most stressful thing, but also the most uh, satisfying thing too. For my listeners, I help high school athletes get college scholarships. I had a, a father whose daughter was a golfer and they went on a visit and she got to play with the team. And he said, you know, I've worked with some of the baddest criminals in the world and gone face to face with some of the meanest people in the world and never flinched. I've never been so nervous when my daughter put the ball in the tee on the first hole for a college practice round. He said, I was sweating bullets. He said, I never believed I'd be so nervous. I totally get that. Uh, any parent, any parent does, you know, because uh, again, uh, you think, okay, the most fun possibility is watching your kids play. And that is very true, but it's also the most stressful because you want so badly for them to have a good experience. You want them to enjoy it. You want them to, to have some success and, uh, and uh, it's, it's very stressful. From 2011 until 2021, you go to university of Oklahoma how was it when you first got there? Because the program was in need of rebuilding again. And how difficult was the tough start there? It was, um, it was a good, good transition. Uh, you know, we, uh, we had good guys, uh, you know, we didn't win a lot of games that first year, but they worked hard and they tried and uh, had a good recruiting class uh, right off the bat. And, uh, and then uh, got better each year and into the final four 
you know, uh, four or five years later. So, uh, but it was good, you know, great administration, you know, and uh, President Bourne at that time, uh, the university president, Joe Castiglione, you know, one of the you know, top ADs in the country without question. Administration was great. Uh, facilities were good. Uh, you know, resources were available. Uh, academics were great. So uh, it was a good transition. Coach, how did you find out about Buddy Heald and how did you end up getting him to commit to you at o- Oklahoma? Actually, uh, our first year there, uh, we went to uh, uh, Sunrise Christian which is a prep school uh, in uh, right near Wichita. And Steve Henson went up there to watch uh, this other kid that was a six, seven forward and uh, came home and said, you know, coach, I'm not sure that guy quite works for us, but there's a sophomore on that team that is unbelievable uh, leader and gym rat and uh, enthusiasm and energy and all the things that his buddy healed. So we started uh, recruiting buddy and uh, uh, at that time and, and, uh, you know, again, he wasn't as highly recruited as what, you know, you might think, you know, he kind of came on his senior year there late where some other schools started getting in there. But, but I think the fact that we were in there early on Buddy and, uh, and developed a little relationship early uh, made him feel uh, that, rela- you know, that tightness, uh, closeness with uh, Oklahoma. And, and we got him, and uh, but he just was everything you know about him today, just a great energy guy, great team guy, great worker, Became a great shooter, uh, outstanding leader, and uh, and then you know just finished his fifth year in the NBA and doing a great job there too. Fun to watch, and so was Trey Young, who was the first player in college basketball history to lead the country in both points and assist. I think the assist part is what people probably are going to forget more, just because of the way that Trey Young could score the basketball. Yeah, Trey was doing anything, uh, you know, things that uh, that first 15 games of his freshman year that had never been done in college basketball. He was scoring, he was assisting, and like you say, he led the country in both. And uh, we knew by Christmas that he was a one-and-done guy, and no one projected that coming out of high school. So he's just got that great skill level, great speed with the basketball, uh, great imagination, uh, uh, you know, as a passer, as a playmaker, and then – not only does he have the imagination, but also the ability to finish the play and, and be accurate with the passes. So, uh, and he did that this year in the playoffs in the NBA. So Trey's an unbelievable uh, talent level and uh, will have a great career. Did you start seeing that he was going to be a one and done guy before everybody else did, like in practices and stuff, start seeing that development just skyrocket? Well, we probably saw it along with everyone else because uh, in practice he was outstanding, but then in the games, uh, you know, and the results he's getting and the points he's scoring, the assist, and the just statistically, you know, like with everyone else, we're starting to starting to realize that uh, he's not going to be here very long. You know, he's going to be a one-and-done guy, and we knew that like everyone else did uh, by Christmas time. When did the thoughts retiring start creeping in to your mind that this might be my last year? Yeah, I never really thought about it uh, too seriously, Um uh, you know, we thought we'd go for another year or two. Anyhow, I mean, everything, you know, we love what we're doing. We still do. Uh, then Lou Hill, one of our assistant coaches, uh, was uh, been the fifth year at, at Pan Am or Rio Grande Valley mm-hmm. and passed away just suddenly at age 55 back in February. And, uh, you know, then Barb and I started talking about a little bit about our grandkids are getting older and we're missing out on some things that they can do. And so that became a little bit more real conversation and, then, quite frankly, uh, we're at the NCAA tournament, and Kev gets the job at UNLV. 
announced as a head coach. And uh, so then we, we say, well, everything's kind of aligning here that, you know, uh, you know, uh, let's think about doing it, doing it now. And the more we talked about it, the more we felt the, the timing was right and more you know, time with grandkids and more time with Kevin's program and cheering them on. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're, we're both healthy and feel good and, and able to, to travel and do things we want to do. So I uh, figured this is a good time. And got a good team coming back here at, at Oklahoma. And Porter Mosier comes in, a great, great coach. That mm-hmm. will be a great fit. So uh, the transition turned out really well. Most coaches that I've spoken to that have retired have always said they're going to miss the camaraderie of the guys and the coaching staff and the games. But looking back, Coach, do you think you'll miss more or not miss all the game and practice preparation that goes into being a head coach? Like a lot of coaches, uh, you know, the the practices in the summertime, the workouts in the fall, uh, the, the time with the assistant coaches, the staff, really is the most enjoyable part. You know, the games aren't nearly as much no. fun as the preparation for the games, you know, the games and people start worrying about the winning, the losing, they start worrying about playing time. They start worrying about who's getting shots, you know, all the things that all coaches deal with. And, and we love, we loved all of it, but, uh, but we really enjoyed most the, uh, the preseason work going into the, the start of the games. You've led five teams to the NCAA tournament. It's a <laughs> signature accomplishment for rebuilding programs what does that kind of mean to you looking back to take five programs, rebuild them and lead them to the NCAA tournament? We always looked at each, each year as a challenge, you know, to help this team uh, become as good as possible to accomplish as much as they possibly can. And we go into a program and you're inheriting a program, you, you know, that, that goal is different in year one than maybe in year three, four or five. And uh, you know, uh, we've always had, Great assistant coaches, great staff. We've always had, you know, really an enjoyable time working with those uh, other coaches to to uh, put the best team on the floor we possibly can. And those coaches have always recruited good players. You don't go to the tournament without, you know, really good basketball players, and uh, and we've we've had those. And uh, you know, our goal is to help each of those players have a great experience and become as good a player as they can on the floor and as good a person as possible off the floor. A question I like to ask all coaches on, that I've had on this podcast is, what is your definition of the word integrity? Well, I guess pretty, I, we always think it's pretty straight up. You know, you, 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 you do things uh, uh, with, uh, uh, within the rules. Uh, you do things uh, within the, the, the guidelines of the program. You do things for the right reasons, you know, and, and those reasons always being to help others be as good as possible. Uh, both on the court and uh, in the classroom and, and socially. So uh, I think just not, not cutting any corners. We never were tempted to cut any corners. We, uh, you know, my dad always said that hey, anyone can cheat and win, you know, so there's no satisfaction in that. You know, I know, uh, you know, financially today, I guess some people think there is reasons to cheat, you know, uh, and, and certainly a lot of people do, but hopefully they get caught and uh, they suffer the consequences, uh, you know, because uh, I think, uh, the game is about doing it the right way and, and doing it for the right reasons. For all you student athletes out there, regardless if you're in basketball or any sport, one of the main reasons I ask the question is student athletes, integrity will make or break you in your athletic and academic careers. You must have integrity. And if you lose it, good luck trying to get it back. Well, and two, you, you think about it, even in the bigger picture, you know, we're about helping young people, uh, 
you know, have a great experience and develop, you know, as much as they can while they're in college. But all these people are going to go on to be parents and moms and dads. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, you, you'll want to act with integrity because you want your children to understand the value of that. And if you, uh, you know, cut corners in college or if you play for someone that's cut corners, then all of a sudden you, you feel like, well, maybe that's the best way. And maybe you're a different parent as a result of that. But, uh, but I think it's way, way more about uh, the bigger picture uh, going forward than uh, the time that you spend in college. You're a leader of a fight against cancer, which I love. I'm a cancer survivor myself, and you're the council chair of the Coaches Versus Cancer, which is partnered with the American Cancer Society and the NABC, which is the National Association of Basketball Coaches. You've been a member since 2007. Was there a personal reason that you decided to get in so involved with Coaches Versus Cancer? Everyone's been touched by cancer, you know, whether it be a family member or a close friend uh, uh, without question. And uh, we, we got started back in the early 90s when the, when the organization Coaches Versus Cancer started. Uh, Norm Stewart, we were coaching in uh, uh, the Big Eight at that time in the late 80s when uh, Coach Stewart uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And so he started up a little a three-point challenge where he raised funds, uh, you know, for every three-pointer his team made to, to fight cancer. And then the NABC, our National Organization of Coaches, uh, took on uh, the fight against cancer as their signature philanthropy. So uh, coaches across the country do a great job of using their platform to uh, raise awareness in the fight against cancer, to raise dollars, to uh, put forth in uh, research, uh, to find a cure for cancer. And and uh, so, yeah, we're just uh, one of the coaches that got involved. And, and Natalie Morrison's our director nationwide with Coaches Versus Cancer does a great job in, in uh, reaching out to coaches and uh, in, uh, kind of rallying everyone to, to be on the same page in the fight against cancer. Where did the idea for suits and sneakers come from? Because it's brilliant because it does raise awareness on that weekend. No, there's a TV focus on it, but it's just different to see coaches wearing sneakers on the sidelines. So it brings attention to, if you're not familiar with it, of, hey, why is this, why are these coaches wearing tennis shoes? And then it brings awareness to the cancer. Exactly. And that's the reason for doing it, just to bring awareness, uh, bring attention to the, to the need to fight cancer. And uh, everyone's on board with uh, that cause. Uh, and that is a, a good weekend for us, a good week there in late January, where uh, and even there's discussion now with uh, coaches maybe taking on a more casual look, you know, uh, getting away from the uh, during the pandemic. Uh, everyone got away from the, uh, the suits uh-huh. and ties. So uh, we may be uh, talking about a pullover now uh, <laughs> along with the sneakers instead of uh, suits and sneakers. But still, it's a great attention getter and uh, raises awareness and raises dollars in the fight against cancer. You're the founder of the Coaches versus Cancer Las Vegas Golf Classic that's raised over 3.5 million in 11 years. You get a big turnout from all the coaches coming in town here in Las Vegas and playing that event? We do. Uh, we do. Actually, last year was the biggest turnout we've ever had coming out of the pandemic year. Uh, Sanford Health out of South Dakota is a, is a huge sponsor for us, a title sponsor. Uh, MGM Resorts International is our host sponsor. In Vegas, they do a great job. We play Shadow Creek. We play Southern Highlands. We're going to add uh, Cascada next year. Uh, we've got Summit on board, uh, you know, four great courses there. Uh, we'll have about 80, 85 foursomes next year that come to uh, Vegas in uh, in the middle of May, and, uh, and about 25 of those 
sports will be headed by uh, head coaches around the country. So they bring their boosters to town. It's become kind of a reunion because next year will be the 15th year that we've done it. Uh, and we've gone over uh, $6 million now, wow. you know, uh, during that time. So uh, it's a great cause. Coaches do a great job and we get great support from uh, local folks in, uh, in Vegas. Listeners, let me tell you, he just named four top courses in Shadow Creek, Cascada, the Summit, and Southern Highlands. You're going to be hard-pressed to find four better golf courses in one town than the four you just named here in Las Vegas. No, that's very true. And uh, they, 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 a, good, uh, a good deal. They become a partner. And uh, it's a good reason. Of, you know, people come back uh, because of they want to fight cancer. But they also have a good time while they're doing it. They don't lose sight of the reason they're in Vegas. You're the 2019 recipient of the John R. Wooden Legends of Coaching Award. What's that mean to you, Coach? Well, given that uh, the other the other recipients, you know, are all people that I respect a lot, you know, from the their impact on the game and and uh, uh, their impact in the communities that they've been a part of. So we're honored by that, you know, and that's as much a, a award uh, to my wife Barb because she's as involved or more involved in communities than I am every step uh, along the way. But uh, but yeah, that's a nice honor and uh, and uh, we appreciate it very much and. Uh, we uh, hope to represent uh, Coach Wooden well in that respect. You mentioned your wife, Barb, and yourself have numerous awards and been involved in community and volunteer involvement. And for listeners, this is just a small sample. I can't even list them all. There's been so many, but American Cancer Society, Coaches versus Cancer that we just talked about, they've been involved in alcohol and drug abuse, domestic violence, scholarships for the deaf, homeless youth, health districts, boys and girls clubs, and many more Coach, where does this passion come from, from your wife and you to get so involved in community and volunteer work? Well, I think we both grew up in, in families that, that felt you know, strongly about giving back and uh, being involved in the community. So it, it kind of stems from our parents uh, to start with. But uh, then just to see other coaches do that when they're growing up as a young coach, see other coaches that use their platform well to reach out and impact uh, young people uh, in a lot of cases uh, just, just seemed a natural thing to do. So when we uh, became head coach, uh, uh, we uh, you know definitely wanted to have that as a priority to work with others in the community to do such a great job in volunteering their time to help young people or homeless or the abused or whatever the case might be. There's uh, there's plenty of opportunity to reach out. And uh, Barb certainly leads the way in uh, helping us do that. Now retired, you said you want to spend time with the grandkids in retirement. What else are you looking to do? Play more golf, travel more? What's on the horizon, Coach? Well, all of that for sure. And, and, and quite frankly, I don't know what exactly lies ahead. Certainly all those things you mentioned are priorities. But I would imagine, you know, we've been a part of a team for 45 years and, and more. So I would imagine we'll need connection. We'll need to feel significant with some group. And I don't know what that is right now, but uh, eventually we'll get – moved uh, full-time to Vegas, and uh, we know a lot of people there. We know a lot of uh, a lot of charities there, and uh, we'll reach out and see where we might fit fit best in, uh, in reaching out and helping others. When people look back and talk about Coach Lon Kruger's career, what do you want them to remember most? I think, the, you know, you mentioned integrity. You know, I think that's always really important because that's important to us as it relates to representing our family. And then parents, uh, they both passed, but still, uh, you know, uh, everything we got kind of stems from their teachings early on. 
so that's important. We want we want you know our players uh, to think that we were fair. You know, we uh, coached them hard, but we're always positive, always reinforced confidence. That was important to us. Uh, you know, we wanted to be consistent. You know, uh, we weren't up one day, down the next day, negative one day, positive next day. We were, you know, hopefully we're consistent every day. Uh, we wanted a culture in which our players wanted to get you know, to come to practice. They wanted to be around us. I think when you're promoting confidence all the time, you're, you're positive in your criticism, uh, you're uh, consistent in your approach. That gives you a better chance to have players that want to be around. So but we were fortunate. We were blessed to have the opportunity to do something we love to do every day. We enjoyed every day and we were able to do it for 45 years. So that's a pretty good stretch. In that time, and I'm going to end it on this, your coaching tree that your son has just joined is now 16. And there's some fabulous names on this people. Dana Altman and Steve Henson, the late Lou Hill, Tim Jankovic, Rob Judson, Marvin Menzies, Eric Musselman, uh, Derek Thomas, Jock Vaughn, and your son, Kevin, Clayton Bates. I mean, I could keep naming all these names on your coaching tree. How much do you pay attention or were you able to pay attention to the people that you've helped move forward in the career? We pay a lot of attention. We're huge fans of all those folks and uh, we follow them closely and we still, of course, maintain communication and contact. Uh, I think that goes back to when you identify good people on the front end and all those people worked with us or played for us or, or whatever, then there's a good chance that you're going to have a good treat because all those people are good people and they're going to, going to do good things in their lives. And, uh, and as a result of them doing good things, that makes our uh, tree more, uh, more uh, enjoyable, I guess. Today's show is brought to you by AromaRetail.com. Your sense of smell is the first to develop in all of our senses. Even before we are born, our sense of smell is fully developed and functioning. It's a low-cost, simple, and easy to set up and use. Pure-grade fragrance oils It's the least expensive solution for environmental scenting, and they ship within 24 hours. Get your house smelling wonderful or your office. I've been fortunate enough to have this in mind. They have over 80 fragrances, resorts, places, moods, seasonal, you name it. Aroma Retail has it. If you go to the show notes or to my website, beforethelightspod.com and go to the sponsor page and click on the link. Use the code LIGHTS10. That's LIGHTS10 to get 10% off your order. I'm telling you, if you want your house to smell like a bakery or one of the resorts here in Vegas, Aroma Retail is your connection to it. Coach, thanks for taking some time and being on the show before the lights. I've enjoyed it. Tommy, thank you. My pleasure. If you would, please rate and review the show. Five stars, nice comments are always appreciated. And follow us on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canelli. A salute. A chin chin.